Ryan read our text for us this morning. This thing's going to be in my way. Ryan read our text for us this morning. And um, the topic that I want to discuss with you this morning is Christian fellowship. Fellowship is not just a social gathering, as we sometimes like to think of it. Fellowship is specifically a Christian word. And what it denotes is a common, a common participation, not only in the grace of God, but also the salvation of Christ and the indwelling Spirit. See, it's our common possession. It's our common possession of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that makes us all one in Christ. So, fellowship includes union with other believers as a result of a common enjoyment in spiritual endeavors. We are we have fellowship when we do things together that are around a common purpose and that common purpose is Christ. Fellowship is not hanging out having a football party. Fellowship is not those things. Fellowship is is coming together when that common Activity revolves around Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want to talk a little bit about, about fellowship. In this prologue to 1 John, verses 1 to 4, John introduces his readers to this idea of fellowship. He says, and I'm going to give you the condensed version of verses 1 to 4. He says, we proclaim Jesus Christ to you so that you may have fellowship with us. That's basically verses 1 to 4 in a nutshell. We proclaim Jesus Christ to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And then he adds this, And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So the subject this morning is fellowship. John is speaking there on behalf of all the apostles when he says us. We, we proclaim Jesus Christ to you. And the purpose of that is so that you can have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So, so, now, so, so beginning in verse 5, John begins to describe true Christian fellowship. And in the next few verses, we're going to see that we're going to see the premise for Christian fellowship. We're going to see some things that prevent Christian fellowship. And then finally, we're going to look at the provision for Christian fellowship. So first, the premise for Christian fellowship. Verse 5. He says, This is the message that we heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So John announces that that he is sharing a message that he and the other apostles have heard from Jesus himself, and that message is this, that God is light. What does he mean by God is light? There's God is light. Light is the nature. It's the character of God. God is not a light, or he's not some kind of light. God is light itself. He is, the, he is uncreated light. When it speaks of God as light, it also speaks symbolically of His holiness and of His purity. 
of His righteousness and His goodness. Light is actually part of the essence of God. He is completely, absolutely, entirely holy with no sin, with no taint of moral defect or impurity and no hint of injustice. He is 100% pure. And that's the image that this light is meant to, is meant to portray. Now, the Old Testament regularly associates light with God. And most notably, it's when it talks about His glory. And there's a number of places that we can turn. At first, it was seen by Moses. And you're familiar with this story in Exodus 33. It wasn't long after God had made His covenant at Mount Sinai, which was Exodus 32. Shortly after that, the Israelites broke that promise and built a golden calf. And it angered the Lord. And in chapter 33 of Exodus, He tells the Israelites, or He tells Moses, He said, you're on your own. I'm not going anymore. You're, I'm done with this people. They're obstinate. They're stiff-necked. They, I will not continue this journey with them. Well, then Moses persuaded the Lord to change His mind. And so the Lord decided that He would go with Israel. And then at this moment, Moses must have been feeling pretty confident in himself, must have been uh, kind of feeling his oats there because the next verse, verse 18 of Exodus 33, says that, says that Moses made the ultimate request of God. He said, okay, now show me your glory. And you're familiar with this story. The Lord responds. He says, okay, but I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock and then when my glory passes by, that is, when I pass by, and the glory of God is such, is such a, is, is a brilliant splendor of who He is that no man can look upon it. And He says this. He says, I'm going to put you in this cleft of the rock. When my glory passes by, I'm going to cover you with my hand or else you will die. It's that magnificent. He said, and after I pass by, I will remove my hand and I'll let you see my back. That is, I'll give you a glimpse, a very small glimpse of my glory. And so Moses was able to see the glory of God in this light and its magnificent splendor. David sang about God's light, the fact that God is light. In Psalm 27.1, he declared the Lord to be His light and His salvation. In Psalm 36.9, he says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. David said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. So the image of light was prevalent with David. He understood it. Ezekiel also talked about the God as light. Just a couple of verses in, in, uh, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 4. Ezekiel said, then the, Lord, then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Again, in Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel said, and behold... 
The glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And he says, and the earth shone with his glory. So the light of God is manifested in his glory. It's described by Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk says, His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. And then in the New Testament, New Testament writers pick up on this theme, or they continue this theme. They describe the holiness of God in different ways. In 1 Timothy, Paul said that God dwells in unapproachable light. He is the Father of lights, according to James chapter 1. In John chapter 8, Jesus declared that He was the light of the world. And then also John describes Jesus as coming into the world to be the light of men and the true light, which gives light to everyone in John chapter 1. Well, then John picked up on a, uses this same imagery of light later on also, later in his life when he wrote the book of Revelation. He recounts a vision that he had of Jesus after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, John piles up image after image after image of, of bright, shining illustrations of Jesus. And the light of God, the, the light of God shines most brilliantly in the exalted Christ, who today has returned to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. Jesus is the is the most visible expression of the light of God. John made that clear again in Revelation chapter 21. He continues his vision here, but this time it's of a new city coming down from heaven. It's the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, verses, 20, verses 10 through 27. It describes this city, and it talks about its beauty with with its walls of jasper and streets of gold and gates of pearls and all the magnificence and beauty that's there. But in verse 22 and 23, John says this. He said, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So this idea that God is light is symbolic of God's holiness, His purity, His righteousness, and His goodness. Light is the visible manifestation of God's glory that we've seen. And God as light became most visible in His Son, Jesus Christ. So this is the message that John is proclaiming to us, that God is light. He's pure. He's holy. He's righteous. There's no taint of sin, no darkness in him. And he states that. He says, and in him there is no darkness. This is an emphatic term. And what that means is if we were to write this in English, we would put like two, three, or five exclamation points after it. But in him there is no darkness. And so this contrast here between God and darkness is expressed as strongly as possible. And what John does not mean here, he doesn't mean that this is simply the absence of light, though it can be that, but but this is it's a moral term. There is no darkness in God, and that has to do. It's a moral quality, and what that means is there's no secrecy, there's no hiding, um, there's no hiding in shadows, there's no hint of sin or unrighteousness. 
So God and darkness are diametrically opposed to one another. God is light. Darkness can cannot be in the presence of God. And so since God is light, in the sense of absolute moral perfection, claiming to know Him and having fellowship with Him while being indifferent to our own morality ends up just being sheer nonsense, doesn't it? You can't continue you can't continue to live in sin and claim that you have fellowship with God. It doesn't work that way. It's like oil and water. It doesn't mix. That doesn't compute. So what John does now for us in verses 6 through 10 is he gives us the preventions to Christian fellowship. We saw the the prerequisite, prerequisite for for fellowship is that is that God is light. There must be a base. God is light. And it's in it's in this light, walking in the light, that, that we are to have fellowship. But there are some things that hinder that. There are some things that will prevent us from having fellowship with God, and John outlines those in the rest of this chapter. So look with me, if you will, at verses six and seven. Verse 6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's not the right verse. Verse chapter 1, verse 6. It says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So the view... In view of the fact that God's nature is light, John proceeds to deal with these three hindrances. Let me give you a little bit of a historical background on this. There was a group of people in the early church. They were known as Gnostics. The Gnostics believe... The the word comes from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics believe that there was a higher level of knowledge that was to be attained in order to be saved. And so there was a hidden... Knowledge, something that they, that someone that you had to attain to in order to be in a right relationship with God. They were also believed in this idea of dualism, that that everything in the spiritual world was good, and everything in the material world was evil. And this will play out later on as we see some of these things. But but um, what they basically claimed was that they could commit sin, and it had no effect on them spiritually. Because the spirit world is good and the material world is bad. And so and their body is part of the material world and it was inherently evil anyway. And therefore, for them to continue in sin didn't matter. Because the, the world is sinful. The flesh is sinful. The, the uh, material things are, are evil. And so they, their argument was that they could continue to sin and it had no effect on them spiritually. So what John does here is he frames his arguments in those terms. He begins with, if we claim, and then he addresses these three denials that make that make fellowship with God impossible. And the first of these we just read in verses 6 and 7 is that the first denial that makes fellowship with God impossible is the failure to recognize 
the sinfulness of sin. The failure to recognize the sinfulness of sin. There are people who claim that they have fellowship with God. There are people who claim that they have a right relationship with God. That and it and they and they claim a real, true relationship with Him. Yet they don't accept certain doctrines of Scripture. They don't believe in some of the core tenets of the faith. You know, it's not uncommon for people to claim fellowship with God who see no need for forgiveness. It's not uncommon to see people who claim fellowship with God who see no who see no need to lead a consistently holy life. But this goes against the direct teaching of Scripture. They're walking in darkness even now. Now there is a sense which Christians do live in darkness. We live in a world, right? We live in this world that's characterized by darkness. It's it's characterized by evil. But a Christian's life shouldn't reflect that. A Christian's life should be like the person walking onto a dark stage in the circle of light that's cast on it by a spotlight. He moves slowly forward, making sure, knowing where he can walk and where he can step. And he does so without fear of stumbling or losing his way. That's a Christian's life in the world. We live in this darkness, but we should not be part of this darkness. So to those who make this claim of fellowship with God, and yet they continue to walk in darkness, John has something to say to them. Look at the second part of verse 6. He says, if you make this claim, you lie. If you claim to know God and you continue to walk in darkness, you're a liar. It's that, it's that simple. He says they lie. And this suggests that it's a known lie. This is not an innocent mistake, but it is a conscious, deliberate, thought-out falsehood. And he says that the truth is not in him. So this, this consistent, deliberate lie is coupled with a with a persistent failure to recognize, an intentional failure to recognize and express truth in our daily life. We ignore, we go through our lives walking in darkness, ignoring the truth intentionally. It is a lie. So when you when you uh, when you come in contact with somebody like that, when there's a clear conflict between a person's what a person says and what a person does, it's what a person does that reveals the truth of what's inside of them. We can say whatever we want, right? But if we're not walking according, if we're not walking in the light. It will bear out in our actions, no matter what our words will say. Believe verse 7. There's good news in verse 7. Verse 7 says, but, and it's always a good word in Scripture. It says, but if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. 
So here John presents two results of walking in the light. He says if we walk in the light, two things will happen. Two things will happen. First, we will have fellowship with other believers. It's interesting to me that he put that one first instead of the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. You would think it would be the other way around. If we walk in the light and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin and we have fellowship with one another, but he didn't. He put this one first. He put fellowship with other believers first. This speaks of a, of a horizontal relationship. And this simply is just a visible sign of a correlating fellowship with God. In other words, it's, it's proof. It's evidence of a relationship with God. When, when, we, have, when we are walking in the light, the, the visible outward manifestation, the visible outward proof that we are, have fellowship with God is that we have fellowship with one another. It's evidence. So persons who cut themselves off from fellowship with other Christians can't have fellowship with God. If you think it's not important to have fellowship with other believers, and remember what we're talking about when we say fellowship, this is not just hanging out together. This is coming together around a around a around a one purpose and that purpose is Jesus Christ whatever activities we partake in if they are around the person of Jesus Christ they're centered on Christ then we have fellowship with one another someone who consistently has trouble maintaining fellowship that person should examine their own life that person if you, have, if you have trouble maintaining fellowship with other believers who are walking in the light, then you need to examine your heart. You need to understand. You need to examine whether or not you have fellowship with God because if you're not having fellowship with others, the evidence is clear that you do not have fellowship with God. And then he says the second thing there, the blood of Christ cleanses us. This doesn't mean that salvation is earned. You don't love the brethren and then and to become saved. What he means here is that when we are walking in the light, the result is fellowship with others. And when we have fellowship with others, then it allows us to see our need for continual cleansing. Not continual forgiveness. We are forgiven but for continual cleansing of our, of our sins that we commit daily. And this cleansing comes as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we claim that we have fellowship with God, but we continue to walk in darkness, it can't be that way. Something is amiss. But if we do walk in the light, then not only will we have fellowship with God, but we will have fellowship with one another, and it will be evident. Well, the second denial that makes fellowship with God impossible is the failure to recognize human sinfulness, the denial of human sinfulness. This is the claim that you are without sin, that you are sinless. Verses 8 and 9. 
He says, we say that we have no sin. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John makes a distinction here between the inner sinful acts and the act of sin itself. He says the sin nature, or the sin nature is what compels us to sin. This is what draws us into sin. This was what Paul referred to in, in Romans 7 when he said, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do. It's this flesh that we are trapped in this flesh and it draws us in to sin. And that is our sin nature. But distinct from that is the act of sin. That is the actual committing of a sin. Now perhaps the Gnostics that we mentioned earlier, perhaps they replied to John after they read that verses 6 and 7, which it wouldn't have been verse 6 and 7. It was There were no verse delineations then, but perhaps when they read that part, they said to John, well, we don't need cleansing by the blood of Jesus, verse 7, because they no longer have this sin nature. They've been redeemed, and so this sin nature has been eradicated. And that's a key word, eradicated. You will hear television teachers and preachers speak of an eradicated sin nature. And John addresses that right here. This is an outright rejection of the biblical teaching concerning the fall of man. It is completely contrary to what Scripture teaches. For one thing, it implies that human nature is inherently good. To, to be rid of your human, your sin nature, means that somehow or another that sin nature has become a good nature. And if, you're, if your sin nature is inherently good, then all that requires is personal growth or development. And there are those who claim that once they're saved, this old sinful flesh is eradicated. They no longer have a sin nature that compels them towards sin. I would just say that this is prevalent in our churches today. And it's prevalent in our churches by and large because of psychology. Psychology has made its way into the church and the premise for psychology is that our sin that we don't have a sin nature our nature is a blank slate and it is and it is impacted upon by events in our life and so we can have, so our nature can we can can grow into good or it can grow into bad the bible says the opposite John says that the person who makes this claim is deceiving themselves. And again, he says the truth is not in them. Notice here that he doesn't say are being deceived. When we claim that we have no sin nature, this is not us being deceived. It is a self-deception. It is a deception of our own doing. When we claim that we have no sin nature, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And this is not a simple mistake. It's an action 
It's an ongoing action that will have serious consequences. In fact, one commentator remarked, he said, one of the sickening things about self-deception is that it leads to the sophisticated assumption that others are as blind to our sins as we are. But this is never so. When we are deceived, when we are self-deceived, rarely are the people around us deceived. And God is never deceived. John goes on to say that rather than claiming to have no sin, verse 9, we ought to confess our sins. And this implies strongly that the denial, this, this idea of the denial of sinful humanness needs to be abandoned. The scriptures are clear. We have a sin nature. To engage in this kind of self-deception needs to stop. And John says that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. To confess our sins basically means just to agree with God about our sin. It's, it means to say the same thing. God says that our deeds are sinful, that our nature is sinful. We should be able to agree with that. But it is more than that, too. It is to agree that, that, that we have a sin nature, that we are sinful beings, but it is, it, is, it is a willingness to acknowledge and admit our sins and to call them what God calls them. And this is more than just a general acknowledgement that we're all sinners. It's more than that. It goes deeper than that. We must honestly confront our sin. And we must frankly admit that we are sinners. And we must do this without defending ourselves. Without creating excuses for why we do the things we do. We sin. Admit it. And move on. Confess your sins. Because when you confess your sins, there is a... You will receive cleansing. God's favorable, favorable response to our confession is assured by His nature. There is no wondering if God will forgive if we confess. There is no up in the air kind of wondering if that will happen. God has promised. And therefore, when we confess, God delivers. It's based on His promise. He is faithful. And He is just to forgive confess sins. His faithfulness to forgive refers to His reliability or His consistency, His dependability. In other words, God can be trusted. God can be trusted to do what He said He was going to do. And He's promised to forgive sins that are confessed to Him. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, He says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. Again, in Jeremiah 31, 34, God declares, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So God is faithful 
He's faithful to his promises. If you confess your sins, God will forgive because he has said that that's what he would do. But he's also just or righteous in forgiving our sins. And it's easy to understand his faithfulness. But how is it that God is righteous in forgiving our sin? How is it that God is just in forgiving sin? Romans 3 has the answer. Verses 20 to 28 describes how God is both the just and the justifier of the believer. It is possible, Paul says, that through Christ, who being God and therefore having no sin, was able to die, and he did die for us. In other words, God punished sin through Jesus. Jesus Christ bore our sin on the cross. It was Him who was punished for our transgressions. So for God to withhold forgiveness, to confess sin, would be an unrighteous act on His part. God must forgive sin because He has promised to do so and because our sin has already been paid for So if we deny that we have a sin nature, we are being we are deceived. We've deceived ourselves. But it doesn't have to be that way. God calls us to confess our sins, to agree with Him that we are sinners, receive the forgiveness that is ours, and be cleansed. When we come to the third denial in verse 10. This is the denial that any that we have any sinful deed. This denial that makes fellowship with God impossible is to claim that we have never committed any acts of sin. This is a blatant refusal to acknowledge any sinful deed in our conduct. Look at verse 10. He says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This Denial is by far the most egregious. It is the most serious of these three denials. But this denial indicates a past condition of sinlessness. That, uh, which continues to this moment. The past sinlessness that continues all the way up to this moment. It's a denial of ever having committed a sin. And John says if you make that claim, then you make God into a liar. To say that we have never sinned isn't just a deliberate lie like we saw in verse 6. This is not just a deceiving ourselves like we saw in verse 8, but it is actually accusing the creator of the universe of being a liar. And you have to say, how so? Well, because God has said that all, that everyone is a sinner. We could turn to verses such as 1 Kings 8, 46, where he says, for there is no man who does not sin. 
We can turn to Psalm 14, verse 3. It says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. In Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we claim that we've never sinned, then these verses mean nothing, right? God has God is a liar if we claim that we've never sinned because God has clearly said that we have sinned. But there's another reason that we make God to be a liar. Not only has God said that we sin, but God has revealed Himself in Scripture as a God who forgives. God is a forgiving God. And that description of Himself, the description that He made of Himself as being a forgiving God would have no meaning if there was nothing to forgive. It would be pointless. So those who deny their sin, those who deny that they have ever sinned, actually sin by denying that they've never sinned. And it's a serious sin. It is the most serious. It is a direct attack upon the character and, and the, of God. And it nullifies, it impugns, it nullifies the entire program of human redemption. It makes Jesus' sacrifice on the cross nothing. It makes his sacrifice of no value. Can you see how serious this claim is? If we claim that we have never sinned, we make God to be a liar because God has revealed himself, because God has revealed in Scripture that we are sinners, and he has revealed himself as the forgiver of sin. So for someone that makes this claim, by no stretch of the imagination can it be said that they have God's Word living in them. You can't entertain that thought. As believers, if you're talking to someone and they say they've never sinned, they are on their way to hell. There is no question about that. But I want you to notice something about verse 10. Or actually, it would be verse 11, but uh, in contrast to the, to the first two claims that we saw, John doesn't offer an alternative action here. There is no alternative. Look back with me. Earlier, we saw that in verse 6, verse 7, he says, John says to walk in the light in response to the claim of having fellowship with God yet walking in darkness. His alternative action, the corrective, was to walk in the light. And then in verse 9, he says, he said, confess your sins in response to the false claim of not having a sin nature. But here, he offers no response. There is no hope for someone who claims that they have no sin that they have never sinned. I shouldn't say there's no hope. 
But the only hope that that person does have is to completely repudiate that claim. It's to turn from that claim and to embrace Jesus Christ. And this is what John gets into in chapter 2. In chapter 2, the first two chapters, First two verses, we're going to see the provision for maintaining fellowship. We saw the we saw the premise. The premise is that God is light. And now we've just looked at three things that prevent us from having fellowship. But the good news is that God has provided. He has made provision for us to continue or to have fellowship with Him. And this is where John goes now. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So having shown that sin hinders fellowship with God, John now appropriately points out the divine provision for maintaining fellowship with God and with others. It is possible, as we come to chapter 2 of 1 John, it's possible that some might misunderstand John's intentions. They might misunderstand the arguments that John has given to mean that we have a license to sin. Let me explain. John has just told us that it is that sin is a characteristic of Christians. We continue to sin. He said he makes that clear when he says, "Confess your sins." He is acknowledging that we sin, that we commit sin. But there is a way for us to be forgiven of those sins and to cleanse, be cleansed from those sins. And so his argument has been that sin is characteristic of Christians. Sadly, that's true. And then he also argues that forgiveness is freely available. So sin is characteristic of Christians. Forgiveness for that sin is freely available. Some of his readers may have reacted the same way that Paul's readers reacted in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, they reacted this way. Their, their question was, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? And of course, you know Paul's response, heaven forbid, the strongest possible no that you can have. He said, no, never. So like that group, now John has to is going to make it clear of what his purpose is. His purpose in writing is so that you may not sin. Not giving you a license to sin, but my purpose here is that you will not commit sin. Because unconfessed sin is incompatible with fellowship with God. And John's purpose then is that his readers would recognize sin, confess their sin, and then strive to live without sin. That's what he's after. That's his end game. That's his goal. So what he has just said in these, in these previous verses, 6 through 10, should have made his readers realize, and it should make us realize, that, that sin is so heinous in the sight of God that we should never indulge in it. 
even once. That should be the takeaway from these verses 6 through 10 is that sin is such an egregious front, affront to God that we should never even consider it. We should never indulge in sin. Not even one time. But then John goes on and says, and if, if anyone sins. So John concedes that sinning is an ever-present possibility. This implies an act of sin that the believer is carried into, which, is not, which doesn't reflect the true nature of his life. In other words, this is not someone who's walking in darkness. This is, this is someone who has slipped up. We've made a mistake. We've committed a sin. And the right response to that sin is to immediately confess it. This doesn't, this doesn't reflect on the character of a person's life. This type of, these type of sins that we commit, that we fall into, this doesn't destroy our membership in the family of God, but it does disrupt our fellowship. It disrupts our fellowship with God and it disrupts our fellowship with others. And because God is holy, because God is light, He demands that sin must be dealt with, no matter how small it is. This is what drove Martin Luther almost mad. He would spend hours and hours a day in prayer trying to think of the, every single sin that he confessed, that he had committed, and to confess those sins. Because God's holiness demands that sin be dealt with, no matter how small. And each of us, individually, we must confront our sins. We must confess our sins. And we must strive to avoid sin. Well, the good news is that there's a remedy for those who sin and confess it. We're not left to our own efforts of restoring ourselves to fellowship. There is a divine provision for restoration and continued fellowship. And it centers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And John uses three different terms here to describe the work of Christ. And the first one he uses is advocate. Advocate just simply means someone who speaks on our behalf. Or someone, literally, it means someone who comes alongside of. Um, it describes, and it can, it can describe anyone who's called upon to help another person. And the imagery here, though, is particularly in like a court of law. We tend to think, or John simply means that, that Jesus is the one who is called in to help us before the judgment bar of God. Jesus is the one who comes to our aid. But there's a difference here. There's a difference between the English understanding of an advocate and what John means. When the term is used as, in a legal sense today, when we use the term advocate, we tend to think of a lawyer who is who's presenting a full case for a defendant. And that and that defense the defense of the accused is based on the merits of the case. That's what we tend to think of in, in English terms. It's an advocate, a lawyer who is who has his workload and he's presenting a, a defense of someone who's been accused and hit but his defense rests on the merits of the case. 
and partly on the accused. But what John means, John's use here, this idea of merit on the part of the accused or on the part of the case is entirely absent. The merit here, the merit is on the part of the advocate. This is John's meaning of advocate. What it comes down to is this is entirely based upon the grace of God. We stand before God condemned. Jesus is our advocate. But His case is not based on our merit. It, his case is based on His merit. It's based on what He has accomplished. The second word that John uses to describe the work of Christ is righteous. He says that, that our advocate is the best possible help that we can get. He is righteous in all of His acts. Jesus is the one who died on behalf of the unrighteous so that He can bring them to God. 1 Peter 3.18 He is the one who has no sin and is own, uh, of His own for which He must suffer. It is because He is not contaminated by sin. He is the one who is qualified to intercede for us. It is Jesus Christ, our Advocate, the Righteous One. He Only He can plead his own righteousness before God and ask that sinners be forgiven on His merit rather than ours. He alone is faithful to our cause and presents the case faithfully and with perfection. Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is our righteous advocate. He has our best interest in mind. Finally, John uses the word propitiation to describe the work of Jesus. And this is a big theological term, but really what it means is just appeasement or satisfaction. In other words, the idea here is that Jesus appeased or He satisfied the wrath of God towards sinners. It's a sacrifice term, and it talks about how sins are covered and the offense is removed. In pagan writings, it, it, this word is, is common, but it's used as an offering made to a capricious God. You see it in movies all the time where people sacrifice their babies or, or whatever to, this, to, to appease the anger of a God. And, and um, that is propitiation. But in Scripture, in Scripture, it is God Himself who takes the initiative in appeasing His own wrath. He sent His Son as the sacrifice. It was Jesus Christ who appeased the wrath of God. You see, we're separated from God. And it's not God's fault. It's our fault. We sinned against a holy God. We made the conscious choice to reject Him, to turn from Him, to hate Him. The great thing is that God didn't cease to love us. God did not cease to love us when the fall occurred. But this initial act of rebellion by Adam and Eve in the garden resulted in a separation between a holy God and a sinful humanity. But because God is light, because God is holy, because God is pure, and because sin demands to be dealt with, God cannot simply ignore our sin, 
and receive us into fellowship with himself as if nothing's happened. Because something did happen. And his nature is light without any darkness at all, demands that sin must be punished and removed. That is propitiation. But his love prompted him to provide the remedy. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to to die on the cross, and He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. God Himself achieved the true and lasting solution to the sin problem. Jesus' death satisfied the demands of God's holiness. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, and in so doing, He enables God, He enables us to have a right fellowship with God. Because the judgment upon sin has, has been carried out. And because judgment upon sin has been carried out, we can now be forgiven and restored to an, as we appropriate Christ's work on our behalf by faith. So as believers, as children of the, of the God who is light, we should walk in light. We should... We should not be continually walking in darkness and participating in the evil deeds of the world. If we are walking in holiness and purity, we have fellowship with God and with others who are also walking in holiness and purity. We cannot claim to be in the light while at the same time we continue in sin, but we can confess our sins and we can receive forgiveness. We have the best possible advocate, Jesus Christ, who who is pleading our case based on His merit, not our merit. He has made the necessary sacrifice to allow us to have and to maintain fellowship with a holy, righteous God through His death on the cross. So we have fellowship with God. Maybe you're here this morning and and you've never turned to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe if you've never acknowledged that you're a sinner and you've never turned to Christ in repentance, the Bible says that it's not too late. But someday it will be. There's a day coming. In fact, in fact, there is a fixed day. The day has been fixed. Acts 17.30 says... God is now declaring that all men everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. The Bible also says that it's appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. Do you know Jesus Christ? There's a day coming. We will die. And then there will be a judgment. There will be no more opportunities. That fixed day is approaching. So do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you cried out to Him in repentance? Today is a good day to do that. While it is still light. The darkness is coming. Today while it is still light. Perhaps you're here and you do know the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you do know Him, but you have been walking in darkness. 
It is, it's you that Jesus is pleading to this morning. It's you that Jesus says to return to your first love. And it's you that, that, that John writes, walk in the light as He is in the light so that you can have fellowship with the Father and His Son. Confess your sins and receive the forgiveness and the cleansing that is already yours. Jesus bought that for you. Jesus sacrificed Himself to secure for you cleansing and forgiveness. Christian, if you're here this morning and you've been walking in darkness, let me just say, with such a great sacrifice, with so great a salvation that we have been provided, with such a great advocate on our side, the Lord Jesus Christ, why? Why would you choose to walk in darkness? Confess your sin this morning. Receive the forgiveness that's already yours and be cleansed. Let's pray.